Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Corey Massimino. He's a fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society. We're going to be talking about the political ideas of Murray Rothbard, which is the subject of a chapter Corey's authored for the upcoming Rutledge Handbook of Anarchy and Anarchist Thought. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Corey. Hey, thanks for having me on. Can you start by giving us a sense of who Rothbard was and the influence he's had on 20th century libertarian thought? Uh, sure. So so Murray Rothbard was uh, perhaps the major, at least in the top three uh, libertarian thinkers in the 20th century, um, one of the most prolific writers um, of anyone of any political ideology, um, authored you know, dozens of books, articles, essays. He wrote constantly for his whole life. Um, so there's lots of material and literature to draw on when you're looking at his ideas and trying to parse out his, his, his positions, which, which changed over time sometimes. Um, and he's mainly, I think, I think his most popular book among libertarians is probably for new Liberty, which he wrote in 1973, which is kind of a, kind of a manifesto for his, his version of libertarianism at that time. Um, which, which could be understood as a kind of like mainline libertarianism. It's after his period of allying with the new left and it's before his period of, being more of a paleo libertarian. Um, and I think that that's been a big, a big, you know, cause you have some people who are really hardcore Rothbardians, but as you asked about just the broader libertarian movement in America, you know, as it's understood as a political ideology, um, it was a lot to, to Rothbard and, and his books like foreign liberty and how he, he spelled out his ideas. You mentioned these kind of phases, uh, in his life, like the, the, reaching out to the new left and then the paleo conservative uh, stage. Do we, uh, should we understand those as strategic moves by his looking for different political alliances or ideological changes of mind that he had? Um, I, I tend to think, you know, it's hard to psychologize, um, you know, someone, especially that you obviously never met. Um, but, uh, my my read on that on that stuff is kind of it's hard to to distinguish between you know in theory that you can distinguish between was it for strategical purposes or was it because of a genuine change in ideology but like those things kind of tend to run together i mean once you start strategically allying with the new left and you're going to all these protests to uh, uh, about vietnam war and you're talking to all these new leftists i mean your ideas are probably going to start to shift a little bit and, and come a little closer to the to the people you're surrounding yourself with and the ideological climate that you kind of immersed yourself in. Um, so I, I think often strategical was at the top of his head um, with with his decisions. I you know he I think he I, I think he was pretty clear about always trying to find the best avenue and best political affiliations to to you know spread his idea of liberty at whatever time it is. And that's why it shifts so much in his life at first um, in the fifties and early sixties, when he's starting to write, um, he writes his treatise man economy and state in 1962, I think. And uh, you know, during that time, he's a big fan of the old right from, you know, maybe a decade or two prior, um, you know, and people like uh, Mencken and, and Oppenheimer and Nock and, he sees, you know, that as the main way to, to advance liberty, you know, but then the, the, seventies the come along and Vietnam comes along and, the, and more importantly, the cold war really intensifies and that really pushes him to go away from the conservatives, uh, uh, which he views as, as, you know, the, 
they 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 became a lost cause because of the Cold War. I think is his position, and the old right didn't exist anymore. And now there was this emerging, you know, new, uh, uh, you know, kind of radical ideas that he was attracted to um, in the seventies. And so I think he started to ally with them, and and he still has he's still critical of certain leftist things in the time period for sure. And it wasn't you know long before the new left itself sort of collapsed and disintegrated into competing factions and Rothbard just abandoned it too and realized, well, this, this isn't strategical anymore. You know, I got to carve out my own kind of new path. Um, and then you fast forward a couple of years and he starts to see uh, paleoconservatism as the best ally for libertarianism. And I think again, mainly because that's when you get to the late eighties and, and the early nineties at the end of his life, the cold war was, was over. So he saw again, like, well, maybe the right can be salvaged and allied with for, uh, a libertarian cause, and he was very pessimistic about about the left because in the early '90s you had, you know, uh, you had a, a, a just like now the last few years you had a, a wave of you know political correctness sort of discourse around um, similar to what we're experiencing, and he was you know very paleoconservative on these issues and really pushed away from the left. So at the end of his life, those were his alliances there, and I think he his ideas probably shifted more towards paleoconservatism at that time because that's who he was around. That's who he was reading and who was reading him, you know, and that's who his friend's circle was. That's who his financial support was. Um, but we know all throughout his life, he just, he liked to burn bridges. He liked to, he liked the strategical element of politics uh, almost as a game. Before we dig into his thought, because of his, his shifting alliances and his shifting views over the course of his life and how that plays into our, his your argument, it might be helpful if we took a moment to have you just explain <clears throat> what you mean by the new left and what kind of the core of their views was and what you mean by like what is a paleoconservative? What do they believe? Well, the, the, the new left, uh, I would say, was characterized mostly by, you know, an opposition. I mean, the big thing was the Vietnam War at the time. And I think that united everyone and that united a lot of radical leftists that opposed the status quo um, American governmental economic political system um, with a lot of de- different details and specifics um, uh, under that one big, you know, header new left. Um, you know, and you even have uh, one of the presidents of the Students for Democratic Society, the, the hallmark new left organization at the time, he himself identified as a Rothbardian, uh, Carl Oglesby. Um, he's a quite an interesting uh, new left thinker that you can find. And he was influenced by Rothbard um, and sort of, if we put it in language today, he would be an advocate, I think, of bottom unity or, you know, the idea that the two bottom quadrants on the political compass, the two libertarian quadrants ought to try to work a little more together and against the authoritarian quadrants because of their common affiliations and uh, and and so the new left, I think, was mainly against the war, against militarism, and it saw that really entwined with the corporate state and the military industrial complex, and um, you know policing at home and corporatism and neo mercantilism. And Rothbard was on board with all that stuff, and he, you know, wrote about it uh, quite a bit. Um, but when you get fast forward fifteen twenty years, and you get the Cold War is ending, and conservatism is kind of changing a little bit. And, and there's this paleoconservatism that he kind of hooks onto, um, that he, he, he gets drawn into. And, uh, I would say the central thing that characterizes paleoconservatism, uh, is it's distinct from, you know, neoconservatism. It's, 
you know, it tries to have this, you know, non-interventionist foreign policy while at the same time, um, you know, advocating for minimal government in, in economic spheres, say, um, you know, and advocating for at least, you know, culturally conservative attitudes on most issues of things like gender and race and sexuality um, and religion. And he, by the early 90s, was was very much interested and invested in these culturally conservative attitudes, as he saw as pretty important, but he didn't want the government to mandate anything about it, obviously. He never repudiated anarchism, but he did say, you know, his most infamous quote is from the early 90s and uh, an essay where he says to unleash the cops, you know, to administer instant punishment on the, the people on the street, you know. And so it's a weird shift where he was, you know, he was more allying with the Black Panthers against the cops in the new left phase. And then, you know, by the early 90s, he's being squishy and squeamy on his anarchism and, and supporting, you know, more police action. So despite these these phases that we've we've been discussing, you argue that there are some core things. As you said, he never repudiated his anarchism, um, even though he might have had some poorly chosen words at different times. Uh, so we can go kind of go through those. One of them you you point out is that he was a lifelong believer in, in natural law and, and morality based on natural law. How, how did he view that? Yeah, so uh, I would say the the one of the biggest elements that that, that forms the foundation of his thought. Um, and, and it can be really seen throughout um, is Aristotelian natural law, um, you know, in the tradition of, of Aristotle and Aquinas um, uh, viewing, uh, you know, humans as natural entities in the world um, with a certain nature and with a certain function, um, a certain uh, thing that's unique and, and specific to humans that distinguishes them from the other natural entities in the world, particularly non-person animals. Um, and that's, you know, our rational faculty, our capacity to choose and decide our ends and, uh, you know, form projects and goals and, and by extension, cooperate with other agents who are forming projects and goals. Um, and so that's a big thing for Rothbard. He, he at first wasn't, I mean, his teacher was Mises in the fifties. So Mises did not like natural law at all. He was utilitarian of sorts. Um, but when Murray came into contact with Rand, he, you know, he's quoted, um, and a letter is saying that Rand showed him the glory of natural rights and they had a schism and split off. So he never attributes his ideas to Rand. Um, but if you read, you know, his major work on here, the ethics of Liberty, the first few chapters, they could have been written by Ayn Rand. Uh, you know, I, I would argue uh, they're right out of her similar Aristotelian liberal framework that sees this connection between, you know, the rational action necessary for a virtuous life and the good life a connection between that and a connection between the freedom and autonomy granted by liberal political orders. Um, and in Rothbard's case, you know, full on, full on anarchism um, without any government. So, so, so natural law for him is kind of that moral base for that. He, he sticks his anarchism on top of. What's the scope of rights for Rothbard drawing from that Aristotelian tradition? Because if you can imagine if he's, if the argument is that we have these these faculties and a nature and that is tied into a good life and so a good life is being able to exercise these sort of things and so if i interfere with your exercise of you know rational choice and self authorship and so on i'm interfering with your ability to lead as good a life as possible um but you could also imagine saying well but that also means that we should be positively providing for you because if what matters ultimately is that you lead a good life there's lots <clears throat> of things that you need beyond 
you know, just <clears throat> autonomy in order to live well or lots of things we could do to help you live well. And so you could see it on the other end of the spectrum, potentially justifying much more robust, say, positive liberties or intervention or resource transfer or so on. So how does he – where does For he sure. come down in that spectrum and how does he get to there from these priors? For sure. Uh, that's that's a good question. Most – uh, you know, most Aristotelians following uh, Aristotle uh, have been, you know, much more to the communitarian side of political theory, um, whereas Rothbard is on the more individualist side. And, and, and you know, and that makes sense because for Aristotle, political community is uh, completely central and essential to to human society and, and human nature. He sees a very, very close connection between our rational nature and our language using nature and our political nature. Um, you know, like I said, the, 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 the rational faculty we have is what enables us to cooperate with other rational actors. So all these are sort of intertwined for Aristotle. And that's why he calls us a social animal or a political animal at times. And most thinkers in history have taken that to say, okay, well, that means we need a state, right? Politics, that's a state. The state represents the community in some facet and then helps everyone be virtuous. Like you said, provides, for them and helps them habituate their dispositions to become virtuous, just like Aristotle says. And, and Rothbard, I mean, he couldn't disagree with this more. He kind of thinks it's a, a, a big assumption, a big leap from, well, we're political animals, social animals to, to government. Um, You know, uh, he doesn't deny that we're social animals. He just has, sees different implications of that fact for, for political theory and says, that, you know, as social animals, the the first and foremost feature of justice, you know, of of that virtue is going to be non-interference in a way, is going to be respecting the space of another's autonomy um, because, you know, he really thinks virtue and rational deliberation, it's impossible when you're coerced, you're taken out of the realm of action itself, of human action and into mere motion. That's kind of how he talks about it. And and so it's not that he would deny um, any positive duties towards other people because um, he wouldn't he wouldn't deny that at all. But but he says, um, you know, a minimum of justice, uh, a necessary but perhaps insufficient condition of justice is that non-interference principle um, with people's projects and self-authorship, as you as you put it. So he tends to get. For a lot of people, or some people love the with his view of natural rights, quite absolutist. Of course, the idea that taxation is theft is a good example, but it gets into some pretty abstract conversations sometimes uh, that he seems to countenance to no degree any possible right violation and almost seems to view, you know, as, as the same as, uh, you know, flicking you on your arm is a is cutting off your entire arm. They're both rights violations or shining a laser pointer on your door. Or I think he had a pretty famous essay in the Cato Journal in the 80s where he kind of argued that if you take pollution and environmental harm and you take rights seriously, you, you, kind of, you might have to shut down factories wholesale because they're polluting and therefore violating rights. Um, is that kind of accurate of, or am I mischaracterizing you think in terms of how absolutist he was on rights violations? No, I don't think you're mischaracterizing um, him. This is why, um, you know, because when, because in, when he lays the foundations, the ethical foundations for his rights theory, I mean, he's thoroughly Aristotelian, but when he actually gets to the rights theory and, and that's what he spends most of his time on, not just in his, his book on ethics, the ethics of liberty, but just in his career in general. 
he's he doesn't talk much about the ethical foundations of rights that he roots in Aristotle, but the application of rights. And in that regard, he is very absolutist. And so people sometimes forget or miss his Aristotelian foundations and interpret him as kind of more of a deontologist. And and, and that's not ridiculous because you know it is fundamentally about that classic deontological principle of Kant's that you know you treat people as uh, ends and not mere means uh, as ends in themselves. And so he. You know, in that sense, okay, but but for him, it's still all part of that broader Aristotelian framework. And and I'm, I'm glad you brought up that the Cato article. I I think I cite that in the book chapter um, because it brings up a, a very a very interesting distinction um, to where uh, you might think of force um, and violence and these terms of you know of interfering in others' projects, and you might think of these in excessively physicalistic terms. You know, in the sense that. Um, you know, we can figure out where a, 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 an instance of interference has occurred by just looking at the, you know, objectively definable physical facts of the situation empirically. And, and then we can determine the normative analysis of this. And, and I mean, this gets really into the weeds of rights theory, but Rothbard, you know, d- d- uh, uh, in that Cato article on, on, in the context of pollution as a rights violation, you know, he denies this physicalistic view, um, and instead favors, um, what you could call, and I'm, I, I did not come up with a distinction, but I cited in the book chapter and I wish I remembered the author who kind of put it in these terms. Um, I think in a journal of libertarian studies article a few years ago, but the idea is that instead of a physicalistic conception, you have a praxeological conception of rights. And so you, keeping at the center of your mind when you're looking at, at rights is not necessarily just the bare facts of the physical interactions in the material world, but it, it's a kind of a thicker, more robust sense of, of action in the sense of projects we undertake. So that's how he gets to the conclusion that, that in a lot of cases, put these instances of pollution are rights violations, not because the molecules of the gases that p- companies pollute the air or water with come into physical contact with the molecules of my, uh, you know, lake that I might own or the air around the house that I own. Um, it's their rights violations because they interfere in some important way with, with actually with the undertaking of projects that other people are engaged in. So your, your, your example of like shining a light on someone or like flicking their wrists, like those are, rights violations in a physicalistic sense, but that, that's a less useful way than, than, than the more, than the more action oriented one that Rothbard wants to, to argue for. So you get, you get some perhaps counterintuitive conclusions that maybe a lot of pollution actually is a rights violation and we need, you know, and he wants this very, you know, complex system of kind of tort law and property rights to help resolve those issues. Um, but then that also, but that, that saves him from having to bite the bullet on a weird issue, like shining a laser pointer on someone is a rights violation because of, it doesn't interfere with, you know, if you're blinding them, okay, that's interfering with the projects. But, but if you're not, then it's, 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 it's only, it, it's a very minimal sense in which it's, it's really interfering. So then this, this very strong conception of rights turns into individualist anarchism, which you say is the, the second of the four frameworks. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he Rothbard draws heavily on on Spooner on Lysander Spooner, um, and and also Benjamin Tucker, um, another nineteenth century American anarchist. Um, 
he, you know, again, at first he was just exposed to Mises, uh, the seminars at New York University. And so he had this Misesian kind of Austrian framework. And we'll get to that later, I know, because that's another that's a, another part. Um, but he has that background. And then he encounters, uh, I believe it was Bastiat through like a fee pamphlet back in the 50s. And through Bastiat, he found Molinari and he found the French anarchists. And then he found the, the American anarchists, Spooner and Tucker. And he he kind of brings that into his existing ideas and, and to, with the natural rights. Um, and so he kind of revives in a lot of ways, this, this liberal, this more liberal variation of anarchism, um, instead of more communitarian or collectivist visions of anarchism that, that, that really dominated anarchist space and thought for the first half of the 20th century. Um, he revived the stuff that kind of went away, at, uh, with the 19th century American anarchists. Um, and so, so he, he, he dubs this, Although I don't think he coined, I think Carl Hess coins this term, but but Rothbard becomes the founder uh, or the, the accepted founder of anarcho-capitalism, which you know many anarchists deny even anarchism. Maybe that we'll get into that later. But 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 nonetheless, he 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 you know he distinguishes a little bit from the individualist anarchists of the nineteenth century because he has this Austrian bend, he has this natural rights bend, he has his own specific thing, and he likes the term capitalism, and so he calls it anarcho-capitalism. Um, and I mean that starts. You know, that's kind of a huge move and a huge thing, you know, for good or bad, depending on, on your views, obviously, that spawned, uh, you know, ton, tons of work and new literature and research, you know, to this, to this day, the last 50 years of, uh, of you know, dealing with, with that idea, essentially, with, with, with uh, you know, uh, liberal anarchism, as, as I think it should be viewed. So you had to mention and alluded to it, but, but of the time and the kind of tradition of anarchy up to Rothbard, I guess we have due to have Tucker um, and Spooner there, but how did he play with other anarchists, uh, maybe contemporaries of his and, you know, what, what, where, where were they coming from more usually if they weren't coming from the capitalist side? Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he was in deep, deep tension with, you know, contemporary anarchists of the time and there, and there wasn't much discourse really between them. I think, um, you know, because neither side really wanted to, admit the other one was genuine anarchism. I mean, they write things about the other side. He, you know, Rothbard wrote things about anarcho-communism or collectivist visions of anarchism, which he says, you know, they're, they're really, it doesn't even make sense to consider them anarchism and, and um, that they would, you know, in addition to that, they would also just be horrible impoverished societies as well. Um, and, uh, you know, on the other side, anarcho-communists have written about anarcho-capitalists, uh, Rothbard being the foremost one, and, and argued, you know, this, this shouldn't even count as anarchism, uh, you know, and, w- and would lead to a really, a really undesirable, uh, unequal society with, with lots of domination that anarchists see good reason to oppose. Um, it's even, you have uh, Noam Chomsky, um, who has not really engaged with, with Rothbard's thought, but, but has said before that, he, that Rothbard's vision is something like a world full of hatred and built on hatred. And it's kind of this bizarre straw man. Like that gives you a sense of like how, you know, anarcho-communists and anarcho-socialists of that bend, you know, might see um, Rothbard in his vision, um, which I think is really unjustified and really just a silly kind of accusation, like a world built on hatred. Um, like, obviously that's nowhere in Rothbard's work. Um, so, so, you know, and, and you have exceptions. I Rothbard knew Murray Bookchin, and they seem to interact a bit, um, not in public publicized debates or anything, sadly. Um, but I think just more in real life, they actually knew each other and talked. But 
But there really is this huge gap between, and still to this day, obviously, most people at these camps don't consider the other ones genuine anarchists and, and think their ideology is really horrible and kind of, you know, doesn't contribute anything worthwhile. How does the distinction between capitalism and free markets fit in here? Uh, because libertarians typically, like a lot of libertarians will use those two terms interchangeably. And so an anarcho-capitalist is simply someone who thinks that you should have anarchism plus strong property rights in the markets that result from them. But then there are people like left market anarchists who say, no, capitalism is something distinct from markets and actually something that you know ought to be rejected in favor of markets. So what what is an anarcho-capitalist, say, versus a market anarchist? So, um, so I'm definitely coming from the the market, the left market anarchist um, perspective, and and part of the chapter is trying to bring Rothbard um, and his frameworks that we're discussing into dialogue and into more closer um, uh, vision with with left market anarchism. And so, I would I would describe the distinction, you know, as uh, you know, Rothbard didn't distinguish between markets and anarchism. Um, the American anarchists that we discussed earlier, like Spooner and Tucker tended to, to distinguish between markets and capitalism. Um, the, the 19th century, that was mostly before capitalism was used as a uh, positive self-identifier. It was often used um, by people like Tucker and Proudhon and, you know, later Marx and even Ricardo, I think, that, that it was used to describe, you know, a system of concentrated capital ownership, which may or might not, you know, have, you know, property rights and, and price signals, even in profit loss mechanisms, um, you know, it could have those things. It's not mutually exclusive with those features that we associate with markets. But but for them, capitalism referred specifically to a system that had this concentrated ownership of capital. And that's why people like Spooner and Tucker also called themselves socialists, which, again, is really doesn't fit into our our modern sort of understanding of these terms, the Cold War sort of permanently fix these concepts, socialism and capitalism, and they're not able to be in dialogue with each other anymore, sadly. But but in the 19th century, that was before the Cold War, and that was before this really hard distinction took place. So you have anarchists like Perdon and Tucker and Spooner and Declare, and, and they it's not really clear how they fit between this dichotomy. Um, and so anarcho-communists and anarcho-capitalists constantly, they often fight for, you know, who's who, who was the real intellectual heritage, you know, um, what, you know, actually Tucker was only a socialist or he was only a capital, you know? Um, and so Rothbard kind of doesn't pick that up from them. He, he keeps the understanding of capitalism just as markets that he gets from Mises and Rand and who were the, the probably the two biggest authors that in the early 20th century that came to really stick capitalism with, with pure, you know, laissez-faire free markets, you know, on, uh, in their liberal understanding. And so the distinction I think that I try to make, you know, is that, um, you know, capitalism can be understood as the system where, you know, capital is in the hands of, of, of a few. And most people uh, are, are, are then, you know, left with little option but to, um, but to work in wage labor for the few with capital. And this is distinguished from markets because the vision of markets that people like Tucker and Spooner had was not one where people worked for capitalists for wage labor, but where people kind of combine their efforts and labor through things like worker cooperatives um, and more horizontal forms of economic production. And he saw those as preferable and in fact, likely given the economic incentives of laissez-faire. And Rothbard, you know, denounces that he had, he had, he in places argues against this view and says, you know, it's capitalism just is 
capitalism as a lot of people forming wage labor for capitalists, not just as free markets, but capitalism, even in the thicker sense, he says, you know, is more of this organic uh, result from from markets um, because people have different preferences and, and consumption patterns and, and, and savings patterns. And so some people accumulate more capital, they save it up, and then other people work for them and get an advance on their income. And he says, this is kind of, you know, this is fine. This is organic. This is part of free markets. Um, what's not part of free markets, you know, is corporatism and what he, you know, what he calls, you know, really at times neo-fascism, um, this kind of corporatist system that he associates with 20th century America, with the progressive era and New Deal reforms and and the military industrial complex and all that's kind of connected to him. But but just bare wage labor for other people for him is an organic result of markets and and totally fine. Whereas left market anarchists see it as there's actually there is moral questions there and that's undesirable. A lot of people working for wage labor for a few and also unlikely um, with the incentives of say a laissez-faire economy. So that would be the distinction. You also uh, another the third pillar kind of as we're going through these for. Rothbard's thought is liberal class theory, which seems like a strange kind of combination of words where class theory is historically been associated with Marxists. So what is what is Rothbard's view on class theory? Yeah, so so uh, class theory plays an important role for Rothbard, um, and and that and that phraseology uh, will sound um, strange, you know, to a lot of uh, modern readers. Um, you know, but class theory predates Marx. You know, Marx's class theory was a specific variation on earlier class theories that Marx was inspired by and then specified in his own little ideology and his specifics. Um, but, 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 you know, the early French liberals uh, like Bastiat and Molinari uh, and, and Comte, and, and they're talking, you know, before Marx about this idea that um, – that that we can we can understand social phenomena in a way through these stratified classes, um, you know, and they all have a, a kind of specific variations and, and and details of their vision, but broadly that you know uh, 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 that we can understand these two classes, and and all the French liberals really tended to associate the the origin of class division with the state, whereas Marx Marxists see it. If Marx himself sees it this way, is perhaps up to argument, but almost universally, because Engels very much cemented this view among Marxism, uh, they view the class structure as an organic result of markets at all. And if you know, if you have markets, that will inevitably naturally result in the stratified system of class own a class system and a stratified class ownership that I, or uh, capital ownership that I was referring to. Um, and so, you know, they, they say, you know, no, no to markets even at all. Whereas the, the liberal class theorists, they say the market is not the, the, the source of class uh, stratification. Um, you know, we haven't had free markets. We've had state intervention and colonialism and theft and land theft and slavery and corporatism now in the last 150 years. And so he, they, they, they view the source as the state, as this, as this source of social division by, by privileging um, people with access to political power, um, access to the violent apparatus of the state, access to the taxing and regulating powers of the state. They use that to, to their benefit as a kind of an, an, uh, entrenched elites. Um, and, and this is how they see, you know, capitalism in the sense of widespread wage labor is itself can be a product of the state itself because uh, capital would be more widespread and, and, easier to uh, access without all these 
barriers to entry and the marketplace and competition and licensing and regulation. And, uh, you know, so Rothbard draws on that quite a bit, but again, obviously he doesn't attribute capitalism itself to the state. He's fine with capitalism, but he does draw on the liberal class theorists very heavily because he, he, he definitely views the American economic system starting probably with the progressive era, you know, supposedly altruistic reforms and then into the new deal reforms. He views these things as all really, taken on by big businessmen and supported and even often designed by big businessmen um, to better protect their monopolies and, and uh, uh, their status um, from competitors in the marketplace that might arise and take customers away from them and produce better, cheaper products that put them out of business eventually. Um, you know, and on this, he really draws heavily from this ties back into his association with the new left uh, because he draws heavily on new left historical revisionists like Kolko and Galbraith. And, 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 and they are writing, you know, at that similar time about how, you know, when we have the story wrong, you know, the progressive era and the new deal weren't these great altruistic positive for the working classes reforms. They hurt the working classes more. They, they stratified the market more. They benefited entrenched elites with access to political power. Um, and so, so Rothbard takes that. And even though he leaves the new left, he doesn't abandon this view. Um, he talks, you know, in For New Liberty, which is after the new left phase, um, about this as well, about neo-mercantilism and, um, and, and, and how, and how, you know, the 20th century has been far from a free market. It's been a system of corporatism that, that, that benefits these elites. And, you know, he keeps that view even to his paleo phase. And this is where paleoconservatism, to go back to that a little bit, distinguishes itself from conservatism more broadly as we understand it in America because paleoconservatism, you know, if you, I mean, this, we're seeing this, this is becoming much more apparent the last few years, especially with Trump, um, though not to get into Trump, but uh, the, the idea that, that, you know, there is this, there is this initial skepticism of big business as, as, you know, as these elite, you know, these elites that um, are benefiting uh, uh, from, from some sort of unfairness in the system. And so paleoconservatives, even though they're not anti-capitalists, obviously, of any leftist variety, they are, they're often skeptical of big business. Um, and, and Rothbard kept that, that kind of skepticism uh, throughout his life. Let's hit on the fourth one before we move to your critiques of Rothbard, and that's Austrian economics, that he pulls this together into this economic theory. Yeah. Uh, so Rothbard was obviously an economist first and foremost. That's what his degree is. And that's, that, and that's what his teaching was in. And, um, that is the major focus of, of most of his work. It's more an economic analysis, but he obviously was a philosopher and historian and political theorist as well, because he was such a wide ranging thinker. And in the economics realm, um, you know, he, he very firmly inherits this praxeological framework from Mises, uh, by attending his seminars in the fifties. Um, and then he himself writes a human action-esque treatise on on economics called Man, Economy, and State in 1962. And Mises praises that book in his review. Mises is a fan. Um, so, so Rothbard kind of brings the other three parts, the natural law, the the individual's anarchism, and the class theory. He brings us all into, into a whole, these four aspects, um, which... It's quite a novel synthesis. It's certainly very, very disparate traditions historically um, to some extent. No, certainly no one before Rothbard, as far as I know, really 
really tried to integrate all these kind of different ideas um, from, from different traditions in this kind of interesting way. And so, um, you know, Austrian economics starts with, um, you know, Menger and Bombard in the 1800s and then Mises and then Hayek and Rothbard. And you have a lot more in the last 50 years. And um, so I guess I guess a little overview of Austrian economics for Rothbard is uh, the view that we can figure out a lot of economic theory purely from anal- analyzing the, the conceptual terms of human action, uh, of, of the way that our means are related to our ends, how our goals and our projects are interrelated, um, and how we economize on, on resources that are scarce, um, both material resources and things like time. We economize on these things necessarily by, by acting, and when we act, we, we have these trade-offs and opportunity costs. And, uh, you know, so he's really against, at the time when he's writing in the 60s, especially, there's this big push in economics for a much more statistical, mathematical, um, you know, conception of economic analysis, seeing more, more, more to gain from um, um, statistical aggregates uh, and mathematical equations than, than conceptual analysis. And Rothbard's firmly on, firmly on the side of conceptual analysis. He's very little, if at all, use, use for the statistical stuff. Um, you know, so man, economy, and state is kind of this this broad overview of this 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 this, this kind of an in depth analysis of, of you know tracing out the implications of these core ideas about human action, about the nature of human action, um, how it economizes on scarce resources to attain future ends, and he and he talks a lot about um, how this, this you know this has implications for all these areas of economics and prices and property and capital and and how these things emerge and interact. Um, and there are other elements to his Austrian stuff. Um, I think maybe worth mentioning here is, um, he, he has an interesting contribution in man economy and state, arguably his, his major novel economic contribution, um, is in, so back up a little bit for, cause you will need to understand, uh, Mises slightly to get Rothbard's contribution. Mises in like 1920, he writes economic calculation in the socialist commonwealth. And he puts forth this, this new argument that really shakes things up and, and really changes the tide of things um, about how rational economic calculation is impossible without property rights and the profit loss mechanism that emerges from those property rights. Um, and Rothbard takes this and says, you know, Socialist societies, the reason they can't allocate resources efficiently and rationally um, isn't necessarily because of their use of force, although that's central to understanding those societies, but it's but the irrational economic stuff is due to due to the uh, the the monopolized control over all the resources, all the productive resources, land, labor, materials, all these factors of production in a given territory. And so they, there's no, there's no uh, uh, way for prices to emerge that reflect individuals, um, you know, changing and shifting preferences and plans and projects and talents, um, you know. So, so Rothbard says, you know, and this can be seen in the way that socialist states have historically relied on prices from the world market and sometimes prices from uh, domestic black markets to perform internal economic calculations that they wouldn't be able to otherwise without the prices emerging from elsewhere. And Rothbard says, we can think about this in the context of the firm. Um, You know, the firm is famously 
an island of central planning in a sense. You know, the firm is not a market. It exists within a broader web of, of interactions that is the marketplace. And so a firm is a system of, of conscious organization. It's not a spontaneous order. A firm, if, you know, a firm is, is this deliberate uh, uh, concerted action on the part of multiple individuals. And he says, you know, if uh, uh, as, as a corporation or a firm or business, as opposed to social estates, as those uh, organizations come to acquire more resources and more of the machineries and, and capital and factors of production in a territory and in the market, then there's nowhere for the prices to emerge outside of the firm, just like there's nowhere for the prices to emerge when a social estate has a monopoly over everything. Um, you know, so he says you're left with this similar irrationality inside the firm as they become bigger and bigger and more insulated from the price system, then they have to rely on, on, on faux prices that they create internally um, and less efficient, less effective and less knowledge yielding systems of, of coordination within the firm. And so that's related to his, his skepticism of big business and ties into the left market anarchist analysis as well. So as an anarchist in the, the broader tradition of, of anarchism, um, you have some, you know, he's not, as you've mentioned previously, uh, I think a lot of those people, you know, maybe people protesting right now who might casually call themselves anarchists would not really go near Rothbard because <laughs> yeah. they're pretty anti-capitalist. Um, but what what is what kind of mistakes do you think Rothbard made in that way in terms of understanding even the broader anarchism, the, even the ones who don't have, have anything to do with him? So I think um, it's it's a really broad kind of issue. Um, and it's, it's not just for Rothbard, but, you know, for in general, how a tradition that was initially just libertarianism or anarchism in the early eight, uh, 19th century uh, diverged into two sep- completely separate directions, left and right libertarianism. And the left one being, and this is, I mean, left libertarian has many, many terms. This is, this is one usage that's the oldest um, of it, which is, you know, uh, anarcho-communist, anarcho-socialist, collectivist anarchist, as we discussed earlier. And the right libertarian isn't being, um, you know, markets and, and, and if not full on anarcho-capitalists like Rothbard. But like I said, his view, you know, his view is that these, these guys probably don't count as genuine anarchists even, and their ideas are pretty horrible. You know, they don't understand economics. They, they, they're not, they're not sufficiently opposed to the state, even though they are, you know, in, in letter and in theory, you know, he doesn't, he's very skeptical of their credentials to, to, you know, anti-statism, um, I guess I would say. And, and I think he's mistaken because um, there are aspects of traditional anarchism, obviously, that he he has nothing to do for or nothing to use for. And, and it makes sense for him to reject. But the general anarchist skepticism of interpersonal domination and uh, as opposed to, to mere aggressive force and physical violence, which is what Rothbard is mainly focused on. The both both things are have, have have real moral relevance. Both the physical violence that Rothbard is concerned with, and the moral the the interpersonal domination that may involve physical violence but cannot be reduced to it, and may involve other things. What do you mean by domination? Just to clarify. So, I mean, there are many ways you can think about uh, domination. In the chapter, I try to talk about it as a power the power one person holds over another 
uh, insofar as the uh, the one person is deprived of of, of, of essential needs, um, and so acquiesces to the will of the person with power over them because they they have little option. Uh, otherwise, they will lose essential needs. So, you know, an example is you know uh, uh, a very poor you know worker who's working for someone who pays them in wages, and if they have little option outside of that, and they're going to starve without the week, their weekly or monthly wages, they'll acquiesce to the to all of the other person. And there's no physical violence there. The the you know the the scarcity of resources um, that that leads to poverty is, is a natural condition um, of the world. I mean, this is the Austrian economics, you know, scarcity is this omnipresent feature. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't follow that everything's just fine and dandy with that interaction um, because the person with power didn't actually use any physical violence against the, uh, the other person. Um, there's still to me something morally questionable about a person spending eight hours a day, five days a week, you know, almost a third of their life, basically acquiescing and taking the orders of another person in a way a school child or, or a prisoner even would. Um, and, and so obviously, you know, this is a, this is a broad topic. There's a huge range of what domination can entail, even in the case of the employer employee relationship, how, you know, the range that, of those, you know, there's so many kinds of those relationships and they cannot be reduced to any single one, but but, but Rothbard doesn't give much uh, concern for anything beyond physical violence. For most of his life, he thought basically the only thing that really mattered was just physical force and violence. And his analysis of morality and economics emerges from that focus. Towards the end of his life, he started to realize, well, libertarianism can be logically extricated from um, other matters, psychological, cultural, and social matters, but it can't be in, in practice separated from those things. So he he came to to care for cultural and psychological and social issues, which which could include a care for domination, but in his case it didn't. It was very much a dismissal, you know, of of these ideas. He called them victimologies, and that's what he would say about the second half of my chapter. Um, at least late Rothbard, obviously he was very different as we discussed earlier throughout his life. But, you know, he, he kind of denigrates this whole list of what you might say, left-wing commitments, things like feminism and anti-racism and anti-ableism, things that are intended and often associated with the anarchist tradition because they are opposed to systems of domination of some people over another. And he has, he, he think he's really skeptical of all this stuff, especially by late in his life. And, and, you know, uh, for this paleoconservatism. Um, so, and I, but I think he's mistaken. I think the anarchists are onto something. I think we can care about both. I think we might say that violence is itself a form of domination, albeit not the only form. And we don't have to say that violence is an acceptable solution to domination in general. I still agree with Rothbard. And I think anarchists in general should, should consider this view more seriously, that violence is only okay in response to violence. You know, the only force that's justified, it has to be defensive in nature. What do you think non-anarchist libertarians, maybe like Hayekians or, or more consequentialists perhaps, but what can they learn from reading Rothbard? Because many, many non-consequent, many lesser areas, maybe, maybe less absolutist libertarians encounter Rothbardians and 
you know, get called a statist within about three minutes. Um, it's <laughs> often not, it's often not a productive conversation, but, but so if someone's going to go read some Rothbard, uh, what, what, what could they learn from it? The, mo- the more important things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting question. There's so much diversity under the libertarian label in America, despite Rothbard's huge looming influence and, and, and a very broad swaths, you know, you might kind of divide it up into Rothbardians who are tend to be more radical, tend to want, like the natural rights arguments and tend to, to be, to be anarchists and tend to, you know, oppose fractional banking, fractional reserve banking, those kinds of hosted positions versus the other camp of libertarians that are more, you know, much more indebted to like people, like you said, Hayek, um, who don't subscribe to natural law, who, who don't have as much of a radical critique as the Rothbardians. Um, and I think that, you know, Rothbardians have plenty to learn from the Hayekians. That, that's another subject, I guess. But the Hayekians um, can learn from Rothbard. I think, well, I think, you know, the natural law view is defensible. I think, I don't think it's impossible to reconcile that with all of Hayek. Although, you know, yeah, the, the, it, is a, it is a completely different moral framework than the one Hayek is working with, which, which is really a skeptical of, of the power of reason in determining the nature of happiness um, in some in some objective uh, uh, way, um, you know. So then, you know, Hayek relies instead on on, on you know rules that we can formulate um, from a more neutral perspective that apply to equal apply to people equally um, and, and help pre- prevent um, you know arbitrary discrimination and force and things like that. And so he's not wholeheartedly committed to all force like Rothbard is. Um, but, you know, uh, I think Rothbard is right on this one. Rothbard uh, critiques Hayek in his Ethics of Liberty. He critiques Hayek's understanding of these concepts and says, you know, this natural law approach is better. It not only uh, is more consistent with the way we think about morality in general and interpersonal morality, and it also grounds a more consistent opposition to the state um, instead of this kind of wishy-washiness um, that, that maybe Rothbardians get annoyed by Hayekians for. Um so I think the natural law is is the big and the anarchism that it kind of grounds is is the big area where you know Hayek's not on board with, with those those firm commitments, but I think there's a lot there. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.